Encontraremos comida ou moriremos. Caverna de Pedra Pintada. Greetings. Welcome to Wikisurfer, a kind of experiment in podcast storytelling. Basically, the format is this. Two guys, Brandon Phibbs and Kyle Sullivan, will each pick a starting topic on Wikipedia, crack it open, and see what hides inside. Moving purely on curiosity, hopping from hyperlink to hyperlink, they pick the best, weirdest, most wonderful stories possible. Happy surfing! Well, Kyle... It's been a couple months since I included a World War II story, so I thought it was high time I toss one back into the mix. Because while we think we know everything there is to know about the Second World War, it has a way of sneaking up behind you and knocking you upside the head with something you are shocked to discover you never knew. For instance, Kyle, did you know that the Japanese military invaded America during World War II, occupied it for more than a year, and had to be removed by force at the cost of thousands of lives? Huh. No, I haven't heard about this. All right, so follow me on a brief voyage back in time. The Aleutian Invasion. The Aleutians are a chain of 69 islands. Think of the Aleutians as Alaska's tail. One of these islands is named Kiska. It is only about 22 miles long and anywhere from one and a half to six miles wide. It's the sort of place that if Sarah Palin lived there, she probably could truthfully say she sees Russia from her house. On June 6th, 1942, the Japanese landed 500 Marines on Kiska. Quickly overwhelming a small US Navy weather detachment stationed there and killing two of the 10 men. One of the men escaped and evaded the enemy for 50 days until, starving, emaciated, and freezing, he finally surrendered himself. Don't shoot, don't shoot. I surrender. The following day, the Japanese captured Atu Island. At the time, Atu's population consisted of 45 native Aleuts and two white Americans, Charles Foster Jones, a radio technician from Ohio, and his wife, Etta, a schoolteacher from New Jersey. Jones was killed outright, and the others were shipped to a prison camp in Japan, where 16 of them eventually died. After the war, the survivors moved to other Aleutian Islands or to the mainland of Alaska, as there were not enough survivors to sustain their old village. The Japanese began fortifying Atu and Kiska, carving out concrete reinforced tunnels and building machine gun bunkers. For the Japanese, capturing these islands was not of supreme military importance, other than blocking U.S. offensives against Japan through the Aleutians and placing a barrier between the U.S. and Russia in case the latter decided to join the war. Instead, their primary goal was psychological. America had lost sovereign territory, and it stung. In October of 1942, American forces began bombing Kiska. If you've ever been to Alaska, you know that winter there is not to be trifled with. And 1942 was an especially rough one, with constant blizzards and whiteout conditions for weeks. 
In all, the weather let up enough for only five bombing runs, and it was not enough to unseat the dug-in Japanese. The next spring, the U.S. caught wind of a Japanese plan to resupply Kiska and Atu, and a fleet of six U.S. Navy destroyers and cruisers was sent to intercept the convoy. At what became known as the Battle of Komandorsky Islands, the Americans encountered a far larger Japanese force than expected. Outnumbered and outgunned, they nevertheless engaged the enemy. Because of the remote location of the battle, neither fleet had air or submarine support, making the battle one of the last pure gunnery duels between surface fleets in naval history. Both fleets suffered damage, with the Americans incurring the worst brunt of the attack. However, not realizing the heavy damage his ships had inflicted and fearing that the American warplanes might be inbound, the Japanese admiral, who would later be accused of cowardice and relieved of his command, withdrew without destroying the American ships, giving the Japanese a strategic defeat. On May 11, 1943, with winter effectively over, the American operation to recapture Atu began, and it was brutal for both sides. The Americans did not have enough landing craft to carry their soldiers, nor any suitable beaches on which to land even if they had, and the equipment they did have often failed to operate in the appalling Alaskan weather. The Americans hit the beaches without a shot being fired and were surprised to discover that the Japanese did not contest the landings, but had instead dug themselves into the high ground far from shore. But once the Americans began advancing, all that changed. The battle was atrocious. 580 Americans were killed. 1,148 were injured, and 1,200 were sidelined by frostbite and other cold injuries. 614 succumbed to infectious diseases, and 318 died of miscellaneous causes, particularly booby traps that the Japanese had set in their way. The death count for the Japanese was even worse, 2,035. On May 29th, Realizing that they could not hold back the Americans any longer, the last of the Japanese forces attacked in one of the largest bonsai charges of the Pacific Campaign. Like seppuku, which is the Japanese ritual in which samurai would disembowel themselves in order to die with honor rather than be captured, the bonsai charge was considered to be another form of jiokusai, which literally translates as shattered jewel or honorable suicide. The Japanese penetrated all the way through and into the rear of the American force, engaging in close quarter and hand-to-hand -hand combat with swords. In the end, the Americans killed nearly every last Japanese man. Of the more than 2,300 Japanese soldiers embedded on Atu, only 28 prisoners remained. With Atu recaptured, the Americans once again turned their attention to Kiska and resumed regular bombings of the Japanese garrison of 5,200 men there. 
on August 15, 1943, an invasion force consisting of more than 34,000 Allied troops, including 5,300 Canadians, 95 ships, and 168 aircraft landed on Kiska, only to find the island completely abandoned. After the fall of Atu, the Japanese recognized that their position was vulnerable and evacuated Kiska under the cover of dense fog without being detected by the Allies. Nevertheless, the Americans still suffered nearly 200 casualties, once again primarily from Japanese booby traps and friendly fire. As the Allies moved through the heavy fog, they occasionally fired at one another. 28 Americans and four Canadians died. There were nearly 100 more casualties when one of the Navy vessels in the bay struck a submerged mine. Admiral Ernest King reported to the Secretary of the Navy that the only things that remained on the island were dogs and freshly brewed coffee. When the Secretary asked for an explanation, King responded, the Japanese are very clever. Their dogs can brew coffee. Kiska and Atu are now considered national historic landmarks, the highest level of recognition accorded to historic sites in the United States, and are protected under federal law. You must get special permission to go there. Much of the aftermath of World War II is still evident on Kiska. The bomb craters are still visible. The island is still littered with items left by the Japanese as they fled in haste. Rusting guns, crumbling tunnels, and gas masks. Most shocking to see are the remains of many submarines, half submerged in grass. A base had been established with a ramp and pens for three mini subs that could be beached and could be brought inland on tracks. To prevent the Americans from using them, the Japanese strapped demolition charges to their hulls and blew open massive cavities. In 1987, with the approval of the U.S. government, Japan placed a monument on the site of the worst hand-to-hand -hand fighting on Atu. An inscription in Japanese and English reads, in memory of all those who sacrificed their lives in the islands and the seas of the North Pacific during World War II and in dedication to world peace. You know, growing up, Kyle, I'd always been told that it was a point of pride that the United States had never fought foreign aggressors on our own soil. And while I always thought that those telling me that were kind of forgetting the War of 1812, when the British decided it was payback time for the American War of Independence and attacked D.C., burning the Capitol and the White House to the ground, I don't think they, nor I, knew about the Aleutian Island campaign. And while I understand Alaska was, at the time, just a territory and not a state, that wouldn't happen until January 3rd, 1959, just as Puerto Rico, Guam, and several other Pacific islands are today, I see that as little more than a technicality. The truth is, American soil was held by enemy forces for more than a year, and tens of thousands of soldiers fought, and thousands died to retrieve it. Kyle, when I come back... I'd like to introduce you to one of the men who fought in the Aleutian Islands campaign, though he did so not with a rifle, but with a typewriter. World War II is such a cauldron of stories. I mean, A, you can't possibly hear all of them in one lifetime, and B, many of the stories still have the power to surprise. I hadn't heard of any of this before. Fighting over Alaskan islands in World War II, 
the, the pictures that it conjures up in my mind of these whiteout conditions and blizzards and, and battle in frozen places, it runs counter to all of the World War II imagery that movies and pictures have, have fed me over the years. I would love to see a depiction of this particular battle uh, in film, actually. I think that'd be kind of neat to see. You're so right. We have these images in our heads of allied forces working their way across towns completely shattered in Europe. Or we have images of U.S. soldiers fighting their way through the jungles of the South Pacific. Like we don't have the idea of Americans slogging through deep snow and trying to uh, unseat Japanese in the middle of Alaska, that like when I stumbled on this story, you know, I was toying around with like, OK, I can't do another World War Two story. So so quickly after our inaugural episode, but I thought this story is amazing. I have to do this story. There are just so many amazing stories in World War Two. And so many of them are completely unknown to the public. So what's the square footage of Kiska and Atu? Like how big are these islands? They're not big at all. So as I mentioned, uh, Kiska, I, I don't think I researched Atu. I think it may have been a little bit bigger than Kiska, but Kiska itself is only 22 miles long and it's anywhere from one and a half to six miles wide. So it is something that, you know, you could walk across the width of it in just a couple hours. Did people in the United States know that these islands were being fought over? Was this something that was known about broadly in the American public? That's a good question. I have no idea. You know, back in World War II, we really relied on uh, on, uh, on a certain amount of censorship when it came to you know military maneuvers. And things weren't discovered until years after the fact. Um, I have to assume that these did make their way into the public sphere. But if that's the case, why have we not heard about them sooner. You know, I'm, I'm motivated to put this near the top of my uh, places to travel to. Uh, I might need to find a way to get a camera on some of those ruins. It sounds fascinating, actually. Nice story, Brandon. Alaska is one of my favorite places I have ever been, and uh, this would be certainly a, a sort of crown jewel in a visit there. So where are we going to start today with you? We are going to go to South America. Near the top of my list of places that I very much want to travel to is the Amazon Rainforest, home of the world's greatest river, the Amazon River. The Amazon River! <clears throat> now, the Amazon Rainforest and the river can only really be described in superlatives. The forest represents over half the planet's remaining rainforests and contains nearly 400 billion trees. Billion with a B, Brandon. It is the most biodiverse place on Earth, containing one in every 10 known species in the world. And it can be deadly. This forest is home to the black caiman, the jaguar, the cougar, the anaconda, the piranha, electric eels, poison dart frogs, and other species that seem as bizarre as benign to us, like pink river dolphins, crabs that climb trees, and the largest, perhaps most over it rodent in the entire world, the capybara, a favorite of mine. 
It is 5.5 million square miles of deadly Darwinian playground, making up parts of nine nations. And the centerpiece or lifeblood of this vast place? The Amazon River, with a discharging volume of water that exceeds the next seven greatest rivers combined. If Earth had a queen to rule over us all, it would be the Amazon River, and the Amazon rainforest would be its crown. But I was curious, how did this place become what it is? It seems, in terms of ecosystems, to be this gargantuan, peerless behemoth. But is this the largest configuration this forest has ever had? Was it always a forest? At the top of my list of curiosities is that of the river itself. What challenges has the Amazon River faced down in its life history? How did it form? Was it always so large? This is what I wanted to look at, the birth and the life history of the world's greatest river and its companion forest. This is a proper surf, but I had to lateral surf to several Wikipedia pages to piece everything together, and even a couple of pages outside of Wikipedia. <clears throat> Wiki editors, should you have some free time, you should get on creating a page just for this topic. So, for this next bit, I'm going to need some help. I'm going to need you to play a part in this story, Brandon. The part of the Amazon River itself. Would you be willing to play along, Brandon? Absolutely. Bring it on. Okay, great. It'll be easy uh, until it isn't. <clears throat> All right. Poof! Brandon is now the Amazon River. You are no longer an upright primate. You are a gigantic ribbon of water teeming with life stretching two-thirds of the way across an entire continent. Do you feel good, Brandon? As a river, I mean. Do you feel all those tributaries stretching out into the lush tropical forest? Mm, yeah, I, I think. I, I feel them. It just it, it feels a little weird. Except we're not going to start in the here and now with you as such a massive river. But instead, we're going to start 55 million years ago. So, it is thought that the Amazon rainforest was born 55 million years ago. Pretty old for a forest, right? And when I say born, I guess I don't mean a literal birth. I mean, how is a forest born anyway? Do a couple of trees decide to stick it out together and face the world? What likely happened is that the Amazon became the Amazon by not going away as a lot of other forests did throughout the Eocene epoch. Um, but I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. First, let me explain just where we are in time, in terms of context. 55 million years ago was at the beginning of what's called the Eocene Epoch, a run of geological time that makes up part of the Paleogene period, which in turn marks the beginning of the Cenozoic era, blah, 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 blah. Let me just set the stage for what's happening in the Eocene. This was the time of the rise of the mammals. But mammals were still small and still establishing a claw hold for global dominance. Dinosaurs had just been made extinct only 10 million years earlier. Not that long ago, really. Bird groups that we would recognize today started to appear, too. Uh, hint, hint, not all the dinosaurs had died off exactly. And yet, there were also fantastic monsters. Leftovers from the previous age still hung around. Crocodiles, alligators, and turtles. 
And huge, flightless birds were often the apex predators in ecosystems all over the world. The Bacillosaurus, a kind of early whale, had just begun to roam the seas. And South America just lost a curious creature, the Titanoboa, a python the size of a school bus. Uh, don't worry. Scientists think that the Titanoboa was only really a nightmare for fish and that it didn't take any children to school. So, Brandon, you are here. You aren't nearly as large and powerful as you will be in the 21st century. You are much smaller now, scattered across the landscape into several rivers. Do you feel smaller, less powerful? Do you feel gigantic crocodiles slithering through your small tributaries? Yes, and it feels disgusting. Do all these do all these crocodiles seriously have to live in me? Well, you know what else? You were hot. Like, much, much hotter than you are in the future. The Earth was really hot during the early Eocene. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the mean global surface temperature during the Eocene epoch was 9 to 14 degrees Celsius warmer than today, and CO2 levels were between 1,000 and 2,000 parts per million. For contrast, CO2 levels just passed the 400 parts per million mark in the here and now. You can already see rising sea levels, changes in global weather, record hot temperatures everywhere. Scientists expect the global mean temperature to rise by 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2040. So compare that to the Eocene, 9 to 14 degrees Celsius above our current temperatures. The Earth must have been baking. You must have been quite a warm little river, Brandon. I bet it feels nice. Oh yeah, oh, this feels great. I recommend this temperature if you ever decide to become a river. And there was little temperature gradient from pole to pole. Seasonality, the type that we're familiar with now, summer, fall, winter, spring, that was limited. And what's more, the Earth had not seen an ice age for 200 million years up to this point. Uh, remember this, it is an important distinction that will come up in a moment. As far as continents go, the South American tectonic plate had previously disconnected from Africa and was drifting westward, making South America essentially a gigantic island. It was perhaps only tenuously connected to North America and Antarctica, if you were into island hopping, that is. For a river, I suppose it was like riding a really, really, really slow surfboard. But like one made of tectonic crust. Um. Surfs up? Forests stretched from pole to pole all over the planet during the Eocene. The rainforest in South America had stretched down near the bottom of Argentina and Chile, down near the 45th parallel south. If you were looking at a map, that is pretty close to the very southern tip of the continent. This was a golden time to be a rainforest, Brandon. And not just in South America, but all over the world. Tropical rainforests could be found in northern North America, even as far north globally as Alaska and Europe. There are even subtropical forests in Antarctica. Polar forests were a hallmark of the early Eocene, and deciduous trees were still on the ascendancy. In a world with limited seasons, the adaptability of the deciduous didn't really stand out. And grasses, that ubiquitous plant we see everywhere today, grasses were still a relatively new innovation. You didn't see much of it in the Eocene. 
Do you feel that great, unending tropical rainforest covering every conceivable square inch of your riverbanks, Brandon? It feels great, man. Like being in front of thousands of adoring fans. But you know what else, Brandon, the Amazon River? Not only were you smaller and the world was much warmer, but you didn't flow to the Atlantic Ocean like you do now. Or at least part of you doesn't and part of you maybe does. You are still several smaller sections of river at this time. Wait, I, I don't? Nope. Why am I not going in the right direction? In fact, part of you flows west toward the Pacific Ocean. Um, hashtag plot twist. This is intolerable. I demand to see my river lawyer. You see, in South America, rivers flowed both east and west to the oceans, divided by something called the Purus Arch an ancient, now quite small mountain range in the very middle of South America's modern Amazon region. The river that you are in the Eocene, the smaller, warmer little Paleo-Amazon or Paleo-Orinoco River of this hothouse earth probably flowed westward from the Purus Arch to the Pacific. This Purus Arch is where your headwaters probably started from, and it is a mountain range that was a major feature of South America during this time. The mountain range that dominates South America today, the Andes, well, they don't exist yet. And Brandon, you were just a small player in this unrecognizable landscape. It is worth noting the arrangement of rivers and water here because it's going to change a lot and soon. And the Purus Arch is a player in the story of how you become a great river. So how do you feel now? You're kind of dismembered, small. You're flowing westward in a steaming hot tropical wonderland. But, I mean, I guess I feel okay. At least it's warm. Because things are about to get crazy. The world is going to change, as it always does. And this will certainly affect you, Brandon. Great. Should I be excited or scared? One of the things that began to change was that tectonic plates began to slowly, slowly, slowly collide, as they also always do, Earth began to lift in places, the consequences of which can still be felt and seen today. I'm talking about the formation of the Andes Mountains. The Andes Mountains! The longest continental mountain range and second highest mountain range in the world. The Nazca tectonic plate, sitting to the west of South America, began to slowly slide eastward into and underneath the South American tectonic plate, so that by 45 to 30 million years ago, the Andes Mountains started to appear, and you can bet this changed a lot of things. For one, rivers that flowed west to the Pacific were no longer flowing west. They were becoming blocked. You, Brandon, were becoming blocked. Great. Just great. Normally, you just would have started flowing east, Brandon. But you can't flow east. The Purus Arch Mountains, that mountain range that once hosted your headwaters, is now preventing you from flowing east. This Purus Arch, once your mother, is now the villain of your early river life. So what do you do, Brandon, when hemmed in on two sides by mountains? Um, can I phone a friend? Uh, you are a river. You don't have any friends. Instead, you start to become a wetland. Water began to pool up at the foot of these new mountains. Wetlands started to develop. A massive series of wetlands, in fact. The Peebus Wetlands, or the Great Big Peebus Lake, came into being. And if that wetland gets bigger or becomes permanent, your status as a river might cease. 
you might become part of a lake along with all the other rivers near you. Uh, wait, 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 I don't want to be a lake. I want to be a river. I want to be free. Where's my lawyer? No river wants that. But that's not the only thing that began to change, Brandon. Of course it's not. Global levels of CO2 began to get vacuumed up by Arctic freshwater ferns called Azola. Blooming in giant quadrants of the Arctic, Azola sucked up vast amounts of carbon dioxide. And when those freshwater ferns died, they took that CO2 with them to the seafloor, driving a drastic drop in average global temperature. This is known as the Azola event. The world began to get colder, much colder. For the first time in 200 million years, an ice age was coming. The ice age. Wait, an ice age? Do I need a jacket? Once extending to nearly the bottom of South America, the rainforest shrunk down to a narrow band in the middle of the continent. Rainfall began to get rarer. Grasslands began to pop up in places where forest once stood, including along your riverbanks, Brandon. Ice sheets began to form in Antarctica for the first time. We've just crossed from the Eocene epoch to the Oligocene. The world is cold now. An ice age is settling in. The rainforest is at its smallest configuration. You are beginning to get sucked into a giant wetland ecosystem. The Andes Mountains are shooting up and blocking you in the west, and the mountain range from which you were likely born, the Purus Arch, is now your arch rival, as it is blocking you from reversing flow and connecting with the Atlantic. You are trapped, Brandon. <laughs> oh, great. Murphy's Law again. Everything that can go wrong is going wrong. And it is here that I want to... Poof! change you from a river back to your old primate self. Well, I just... Ooh, look, fingers again. Oh, I'm back to myself. To find out what happens to Brandon the Amazon River, we'll have to pick back up on the other side of your surf, Brandon. <laughs> this is fun. This is a great story. This is so cool. I, 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 I th- I'm sitting here thinking, listening to you tell the story, and I'm wishing that cameras were invented millions of years ago and had enough memory to do a time lapse that covers millions of years. Because I would have loved to have watched this universe forming and changing and altering and mountains growing and water tearing them down. Like, you know, when you think about a piece of of, of water, a body of water, a, a, a river like this, It's hard to imagine what it can do, what it has the power to do. It's a small little thing. You're talking about it just being this tiny little thing. What possible work can it do? But then you think of something like the Grand Canyon and the Colorado River cut a massive scar in the in the plate in in the ground. And it did that because it had time to do that. And that's where I'm like, I'm loving that your story is told on such an epic timetable that that really allows these these uh, these stories to these these individual stories to be told. Yeah, it's pretty fun. I just you, you know I, I'm fascinated by deep time, by geological time, and water is an immensely powerful thing. And the cool thing about this story, as we'll see in a minute, is that even the water has such a power to it that when you look at it across geological time, it, it's such a force. I mean, that's what we've always been told, anyway. Uh, in this surf, in particular, the mountains are a crucial element too. Uh, the river isn't all-powerful. I, I love that you're telling a story about a place that is 
other than perhaps Antarctica, one of the only places that remain on planet Earth as largely unexplored. Yeah, the Amazon is incredible. I really want to visit. I probably shouldn't, but I really do for exactly that reason. It's a, it's a big unknown. Even though people live there, it's just a crazy place. A crazy place. Who knows? Maybe we'll get in there and discover that there are still snakes the size of school buses. That's crazy. Speaking of the unknown or crazy places, where have we left off with you? Well, when we left off, the United States military had just reclaimed Alaska's Aleutian Islands from the Japanese. And I mentioned that I wanted to introduce you to one of the men who participated in that liberation. His is a name many of our listeners may recognize, even if they don't know he was part of that story. The story of Samuel Dashiell Hammett. Samuel Dashiell Hammett was born in 1894 on a farm in Southern Maryland, but grew up between Philadelphia and Baltimore. He was a ravenous reader who devoured everything he could get his hands on in the Baltimore Public Library but had to drop out of school in his early teens to help earn money for his family. He went to work a variety of jobs, including one at the railroad, where he seems to have found an affinity for drinking, gambling, and hookers. Mm, hey, baby, you want to have some fun? At age 21, he joined up with the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. His most crystallizing moment on the job took place in Butte, Montana, where he was sent as part of an operation to bust up Union strike breakers. The men were striking because just a few months earlier, a fire broke out in the Granite Mountain Spectacular Mine, killing 168 miners, many of whom asphyxiated slowly over days, trapped behind sealed bulkheads, where they spent their final minutes scratching out notes to their loved ones in the dark. To this day, it remains the most deadly event to ever befall American underground hard rock mining. After the tragedy, the mine workers went on strike, demanding better safety conditions and higher wages. Anaconda Copper Mining Company, which owned the mine, put together a small army of violent thugs to intimidate the striking workers. It was into this volatile mix that labor union organizer Frank Little arrived to do what he did best, agitate the powers that be. And he did his job very well, so well, in fact, that Hammett was approached by an officer of the mining company and offered $5,000 to kill Little. Hammett turned him down. Not that it mattered. On August 1st, 1917, six masked men broke into the boarding house where Frank Little was staying, beat him so badly that they fractured his skull, tied him to the rear bumper of their car, and drug him down the granite streets of the town, shearing his kneecaps off. They took Little to the Milwaukee Bridge outside town, where they hung him from a railroad trestle. To his thigh, they pinned a note which read, This is your first and last warning. And it contained the initials of other union leaders. No one was apprehended or prosecuted for Little's murder, though it was widely suspected that at least two of his murderers were Butte's chief of detectives and a motorcycle officer in the Butte Police Department. Others suspected Hammett's fellow Pinkertons. Almost 14,000 people came out for Little's funeral, still the largest ever in the town's history. By all accounts, Hammett was deeply shaken up by the incident. He enlisted in the Army in 1918 and served in the Motor Ambulance Corps, which transported wounded Allied soldiers from French battlefields to hospitals. 
If writers in the Motor Ambulance Corps sounds familiar, you have a keen memory. Many future authors, from E.E. E. Cummings to Henry James, and of course, Ernest Hemingway, also served. Hammett nearly died during the war, but not as a result of enemy action. He contracted the Spanish flu, and later, tuberculosis. As a result, he spent the majority of his time in the Army as a patient in a hospital in Washington, where he refused to stay in bed. All the guys who stayed in bed tended to die, he said. While there, he fell in love with a nurse named Josephine. She got pregnant, and the two were married in 1921 and moved to an apartment in San Francisco. Needing to support his new family, Hammett once again took a job with the Pinkerton Detective Agency. But his illness prevented him from being an effective officer. After one last job snooping around for the actor Roscoe Arbuckle, better known to history as the nearly 300-pound Fatty Arbuckle, who was accused of crushing a young aspiring actress to death during an alleged rape, Hammett quit. That's when he began writing crime stories for the Pulps. Pulps didn't pay well, so the only way to make a living writing for them was to write a lot. And over the next decade, Hammett scribbled prolifically. He decided to draw on the rich well of his experiences in the Pinkerton Detective Agency and set his stories, nearly 100 in all, on the streets of the Bay Area. It was a decision that made him one of the finest mystery and hard-boiled detective writers of all time. And he was successful enough that he and his wife decided to have another child. Shortly after their daughter's birth, in 1926, however, Josephine was informed that it was far too dangerous for her and the children to share the house with Hammett's tuberculosis. They moved out and rented a nearby home where Hammett visited on the weekends. Unsurprisingly, their marriage soon fell apart and they divorced, though he continued to support them on the income he made from his writing. In 1929, with his life in tatters, Hammett tried his hand at something new, a novel. Red Harvest borrows liberally from Hammett's own experiences in Butte, Montana, as well as events that occurred just a few years afterwards, in which striking miners once again clashed violently with mine owners. In the novel, a lone wolf private eye arrives in a corrupt, lawless Montana town where warring gangs have taken over. The detective survives by pitting the two gangs against each other and then standing back to watch the bodies fall. If that plot sounds familiar, it's because famed Japanese director Akira Kurosawa used it as an inspiration for his film, Yojimbo, which was remade as Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars and Walter Hill's Last Man Standing. It also inspired Ryan Johnson's film debut, Brick. And just like that, Hammett became a literary giant. He threw everything he'd experienced over the years. Corrupt cops, cunning crooks, dirty politicians, high-minded vigilantes, rich scumbags, and ruthless dames into his work. Over the next several years, Hammett wrote four more novels, including The Glass Key, which was adapted for the radio by Orson Welles shortly before he made Citizen Kane, as well as the work for which Hammett is best known, The Maltese Falcon. Featuring Sam Spade, his no-nonsense, hard-boiled, hard-drinking anti-hero who's led only by his cunning, personal sense of ethics and code of honor. My name is Spade, Sam Spade. Occupation, private detective. Sometimes known as Private Eye. 
My files in the case of the Maltese Falcon are closed, but I've got the Maltese Falcon. The book would be adapted for the screen four times. The best-known version is now a film noir classic starring Humphrey Bogart. The Maltese Falcon was Hammett's biggest success yet, and he moved to Hollywood, where he lived lavishly, spent money with abandon, cavorted with movie stars like Harpo Marx and Gene Harlow, and began consuming alcohol on a titanic scale. He cut a dashing figure, slender in fine-cut suits, with a pencil-thin mustache. It was also about this time that he met the married playwright Lillian Hellman, igniting a three-decade-long love affair. Hellman wasn't the only thing he fell in love with in Los Angeles. He also began devoting his life to left-wing activist causes like civil rights, became a fierce anti-fascist, a stance likely inspired by having a front-row seat to violent union busting when he was younger, and he joined the Communist Party. He was also very much against the United States' entrance into World War II. But all that changed on December 7, 1941, the day the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The 48-year-old alcoholic communist with a history of tuberculosis shocked everyone by re-enlisting in the army. What's perhaps more shocking is that the army said yes. And here, finally, is where I intersect with my previous surf. Hammett spent the majority of the next three years on Alaska's Aleutian Islands, where he edited an army newspaper and was there to report on the Allied assault on the islands of Kiska and Attu. Now, what you haven't heard me talking about the last couple paragraphs are the books he was writing during this time, because he wasn't. Or more accurately, he was writing, but he wasn't finishing anything. His incessant drinking certainly didn't help. I stopped writing because I was repeating myself, he said. His final novel would be Thin Man, finished in 1934, more than a decade before the close of World War II. After the war, Hammett returned to America and his rabid political activism. While the communists may have been America's allies in the war, they were now our adversaries. And pretty soon, Hammett got caught up in the Red Scare. He was arrested as someone who advocated violent overthrow of the government and was found guilty of contempt when he refused to provide the names of his fellow communist members. Hammett served six months in a federal penitentiary. After he got out, he was investigated by Congress and forced to testify in 1953 before Senator Joseph McCarthy's infamous House on Un-American Activities Committee. As before, he refused to cooperate. He wasn't jailed this time, but he was blacklisted in Hollywood. His radio programs were pulled. His books were banned. His royalties were blocked. He had no more money, nor any way to make more. All of this would drive any normal man to drink, but Hammett had already consumed enough alcohol for a dozen normal men, and his doctor told him that he needed to sober up immediately or he'd die. He actually did as his doctor ordered, but between the drinking, the smoking, the tuberculosis, he was already a wreck. He suffered a heart attack and moved into Lillian Hellman's Upper East Side Manhattan apartment so she could take care of him. He died in 1961 at the age of 66. It was lung cancer that ultimately got him. 
He's now buried at Arlington National Cemetery in Washington, D.C., over the strenuous objections of then-notorious FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. For all of his success, Hammett was, let's face it, often his worst enemy. But not everything was his own doing, and not every challenge was within his control. In fact, when it comes to one particular thorn in his side, he was far, far luckier than most. When I return, Kyle, I want to take a look at history's greatest medical holocaust. Okay, that was an interesting life. What a crazy guy. What an interesting guy. What a tough-as-nails kind of dude. It, I mean, yeah, he... It's like when he was writing Sam Spade and some of these other characters, like he was really kind of playing things close to the vest, right? Like you kind of look at Humphrey Bogart in some of these roles and you're like, yep, I know where that personality came from. It came from the guy who wrote you. I would have I would have never made these connections. I, I never realized that there was a narrative through line between all these separate things. Like he touched the Red Scare. He was a communist. Like the Maltese Falcon, really? Well, that's yeah, exactly. I mean, you go from you go from the war, you go from his political stuff, you you go from these books, but then you also have you have Senator McCarthy and you have J. Edgar Hoover. It's like there isn't a person in this part of history that he didn't somehow touch. It's amazing. It's like if some B-rate sci-fi writer had written a terrible time travel story that takes place in this time period, and they just had to start ticking boxes. Like, oh yeah, he was a communist and. Oh, yeah, he was connected to J. Edgar Hoover. It just seems too amazing to be true. I completely agree, and yet it is. Uh, so he was jailed for six months during the Red Scare, you said, right? Mm-hmm, because he refused to give up the names of his fellow communist members. And eventually his royalties were blocked from the fictional stuff he was producing, right? Yeah, he ended up dying penniless. Obviously that can't be legal, right? I mean... Was it? And did he ever get any of that money back at some point in his life? I I would argue that it isn't legal, but it still happened. I mean, think about it. We're, this is the time of J. Edgar Hoover and Senator McCarthy. There's a lot of stuff going around which should not be legal, but was at the time. Um, and I don't think he ever got a single cent back. So where did we leave off with the Amazon? All right, Brandon. Wait, don't you have to poof me back into existence? Oh, yeah, that's right. Ah, better. When we last left you, as the Amazon River you, well, the situation was dying. The Andes were forming, blocking your access west to the Pacific. The mountain range that was likely your birthplace as a river, the Purus Arch, is now blocking you from reversing flow and heading east to the Atlantic. You and the other rivers are now pooling in between these mountain ranges into a big lake, the Peebus Lake, or Peebus Wetlands. This is a curious ecosystem that is threatening to erase your very existence. I want to be free, Kyle! I'm a river! And what's more, there's an ice age on, the first in 200 million years. Uh, hello, uh, hello, somebody left the AC on, um... Hello? We've crossed from the Eocene to the Oligocene epoch, and the world is getting colder, drier. The ocean, for example, dramatically dropped in temperature around 34 million years ago. I need a sweater. Can rivers wear sweaters? But it wasn't a smooth ride into the ice house earth. 
there were ups and downs, temperature swings. In the middle of this climactic fluctuation, incursions of seawater spilled into the Peebus wetlands region from what we now know as the Gulf of Mexico. This process began to create a kind of gigantic seasonal inland sea in what we now call the Western Amazon rainforest, a kind of ecosystem that has no parallel in the modern world. Part sea, part flooded rainforest. You'll note that there are various modern species that live in the Amazon, which we perhaps associate with the ocean instead of a rainforest. For example, there are 20 species of stingray living in New Brandon in the here and now, fully adapted to fresh water. Stingrays, Brandon. Stingrays? Seriously? They aren't the only ones to make the transition from salt water to fresh water, or to come in whenever the seasonal inland sea was a thing. Even today, scientists can find shark teeth fossils in the western Amazon rainforest. This vast inland seasonal Amazonian sea was over a million square miles big, some scientists think. And at various times, Brandon, you were submerged into salt water, or at least partially or became part of a lake, or became part of a series of lakes. And that may have happened regularly in this brand new complex seasonal inland sea ecosystem. It seems, Brandon, that you may have been nearly snuffed out of existence. I don't even know who I am anymore. Mountains hemming you in on two sides, and repeated drownings in salt water or a giant lake. All the while, the Andes Mountains grow, and the Purus Arch blocks your access to the Atlantic. It was a tough time to be a tropical river. Oh, come on, let me pass. Come on, I need to get to the ocean. All around you, changes kept happening. Mammals started to get big, like really big. The Oligocene epoch was a time when some of the largest ever mammals walked the earth. The rainforest would contract and expand, contract and expand with each little long-term variation of climate. But importantly, it never went away. The rainforest is there for you, Brandon. I love you, rainforest. But those mountains, especially the Purus Arch, they were not there for you, Brandon. Damn you, mountains. Damn you, Purus Arch. So, you figure. So? What can I do? What can I do? How can I escape this inland sea wetland hell? If only you could get to the ocean, you can be free. How can I get to the sea? You notice that the Purus Arch isn't as young and as tall as it once was. Time and erosion were wearing these mountains down, grain by grain, eon by eon. Maybe, you think. Maybe. Just maybe. Maybe it's just crazy enough to work. So your water builds up and builds up. You push and push and push. Water's rising, pressure building eventually pushing against the sides of the Purus Arch Mountains itself. Slowly, persistently, you lash against the mountains, looking for a weak spot, biding your time. Then, one day, after millions of years trapped in probably the largest wetland prison that has ever existed, you break through. You managed to punch your way through your old nemesis slash mother, the Purus Arch Mountains. This was right in the middle of the Miocene epoch at around 10 million years ago. Your western half connects with an eastern half right through the mountains, and now, Brandon, now you truly are a continental river. Now you can finally taste the delicious Atlantic Ocean. 
Man, this feels great. I have missed the ocean. From here on out, only greatness lies. Your destiny as a great river of the world lies before you. You and the rainforest around you survive the successive waves of Ice Age throughout the years. By the time the 21st century rolls around, you will be considered the largest river in the world by volume, pushing out 20% of the world's total river discharge. You will be the longest, too, by some measures, at some 4,300 miles in length. Thousands of boats and ships will travel up and down your length, reaching as far inland as Manaus, Brazil, and much further inland, Iquitos, Peru, home of the world's most inland seaport. <laughs> and, technically, we are still in an ice age. So the fact that you are this abundant, this large, this warm, is frankly amazing. It is good to be the queen. In the long run, the Pipas wetlands and seasonal inland sea drained out and was filled in with rainforest. That bizarre, long-ago ecosystem is no more. Although, in the modern Amazon rainforest, during the rainy season, you gorge yourself on excess water, swelling up to 30 feet higher than your normal water level in the dry season, flooding up to three times your already gargantuan size. There are flooded rainforests elsewhere in the world, but the Amazon is the largest of its kind. You are so large, in fact, so gigantic, that not only do you have the largest drainage basin in the entire world, taking up some 40% of South America, but you also have a kind of shadow aquifer nicknamed the Hamza River underneath you. The Hamza River isn't a river exactly, but it is flowing with the Amazon, albeit more slowly at about 13,000 feet beneath your rivery waves. It is a kind of shadow twin that exists deep in the Earth's crust. So that's it. I'll have more Amazon craziness in a moment, but that's where I got to. Uh, oh, yes. Whew. You are no longer a river, Brandon. <laughs> I, I love this story. I love this story. I mean, it's not even... You almost can't even call it a story because you're just you're telling history, but you're telling history across millions of years. But I can see it all like you're doing such a good job. I can in my head. I'm imagining everything as some great diorama in my brain. I love this. <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. Uh, thanks for playing the part of the river. Yeah, uh, more my pleasure. I This is so cool stuff like sea animals in the river? That is so cool. You know, the stingrays aren't the only ones. There are uh, dozens of species that we associate with the ocean living in the Amazon River system. Uh, it, it's indicative of how crazy this river is. It's Wait, is it still that way? Are there still stingrays in it now? Yeah, stingrays live there now, up to 20 species. No way! That's amazing. So, they, I mean, they, we always think about river dolphins, and that's an amazing thing. Um, but they're not the only species, obviously, that oh, I can't remember the name. I, I once did a did a write up on on fish and certain species that can that can migrate between saltwater and freshwater. Um, but that's amazing. By the way, little known fact. Have you ever touched a stingray? Hmm, I haven't. Stingrays are so, so soft. It's it's the softest stuff you'll ever touch in your life. They are amazing. Interesting. I wonder if these Amazonian species are just as soft. I don't know, but uh, I'd be willing to go down and find out. Want to come with me? Come on, Brandon. Let's go touch a stingray together. Let's do it.
You know, the thing that really amazes me about this is that rivers have life histories. You know, canyons have life histories, continents have life histories. I just never conceived of a river's life history before. It's deep history. And trying to dig this up was a challenge. I wandered through about 20 different Wikipedia pages, combined with several, several outside sources to piece together this so-called life history. And I bet you money I'm missing some lovely, nice, important details, too. Well, you have plenty enough lovely details in here to really kind of give the listener... um, Like I said, I hate to go back to something I mentioned earlier, but it's almost like in my head, I'm watching a time lapse of the region as it is. The time lapse is literally spinning through millions of years and I'm watching valleys form and trees deforest and grasses come up and water surge and mountains rise and mountains fall. It's awesome. So we did the Aleutian Islands and World War II combat. We did Mr. Hammett in this crazy life. Where are we going next? Well, Kyle, you may want to get out your tissues and some matzo ball soup because for my final surf, I chose the Spanish flu, just one of the many ailments that afflicted the aforementioned Dashiell Hammett. Now, I know the flu sounds like a pretty boring subject, but you wouldn't have thought that if you lived through the influenza pandemic of 1918 and 1919, one of the deadliest natural disasters in all of recorded human history. Today, the flu kills about 0.1% of those it infects. But a century ago, things were very, very different. The Spanish flu. No one is entirely sure where the Spanish flu first started. Some historians claim the outbreak began in China, others in Austria or France. Still others point to Fort Funston in Kansas, because that is where the disease was first reported in the United States. On March 4, 1918, just nine months before the end of World War I, Army cook Albert Gitchell became America's patient zero. Within hours, hundreds of his fellow soldiers were sick. After a few days, it was a thousand or more, and the flu didn't stay in Kansas. The Spanish flu was the first pandemic amplified by our modern world. Modern transportation made it profoundly easy for travelers to spread the disease very rapidly. When you realize that half a million virus particles are spread with just a single sneeze or cough, it isn't hard to see how the troops' close quarters and rapid deployments to Europe allowed the lethal pandemic to transform into something the world had never seen before. Kyle, when you and I get sick, we generally stay home, limiting our exposure. But on the bases and in the trenches of the Great War, soldiers stayed at their posts until they were so severely ill that they were placed in crowded field hospitals and medical trains. With their immune systems compromised by malnourishment, combat stress, and even gas attacks, they were more susceptible than most. Wherever the soldiers traveled, they took the disease with them. Soon, all of Europe was ablaze. World War I was the thing that transformed the Spanish flu from a historical footnote to something described as, quote, the greatest medical holocaust in history, end quote. It may have even helped the Allies win the war, striking first at the central powers of Germany and Austria and killing far more people than in Britain and France. About the only thing historians are sure of is that the Spanish flu didn't start in Spain. 
Unlike most of Europe and the US, Spain was neutral during World War I and didn't have mandatory wartime censorship. While other countries, including our own, stifled any news deemed detrimental to the war effort, Spain accurately recorded the pandemic as it ravaged their state, even infecting King Alfonso VIII. Because of this, the disease was dubbed the Spanish flu, when it should perhaps have been called the Kansas flu. In the waning months of 1918, the same soldiers who had infected each other and most of Europe were now returning home and they brought a mutated, more virulent flu with them. On November 11th, while millions of people spilled out into the streets to celebrate Armistice Day with parties and parades, the virus was jumping from person to person. The Spanish flu killed many of its victims within hours of the symptoms first appearing. There were no effective vaccines to battle the flu. Those didn't appear in America until the 1940s. 200,000 people in America died in October alone. Normally, the flu kills children under two and adults over 70. This one clobbered adults between 20 and 40. It was theorized that a flu epidemic several decades earlier may have fortified the elderly to the newer strain. If you were pregnant when you became sick, you had between a 23 and a 71% chance of dying and a more than 25% chance of losing your child after a successful birth. One third of every human on the planet was infected. More than 17 million people died in India, about 5% of its population. 390,000 of 23 million people affected died in Japan. 1.5 million died in Indonesia. It killed 10% of the Irish. 13% of Tahiti was wiped away. In Samoa, 90% of the population was infected, 30% of adult men, 22% of adult women, and 10% of the children died. In Iran, perhaps 22% of the population died. In the US, nearly 30% of the population, including Woodrow Wilson, became infected, killing more than 675,000 people, roughly 10 times the amount of American soldiers who were killed in the war. It killed so many people that life expectancy in the United States dropped by more than a decade. Native American tribes in the West were among the hardest hit. In Alaska, entire villages perished. Some communities closed all their businesses, schools, libraries, bars, and theaters. Some towns required special paperwork to pass through them. And other communities imposed quarantines, requiring citizens to wear masks, avoid shaking hands, and stay indoors. The war had created a shortage of healthcare workers, and those who were available couldn't tend to the sick without getting sick themselves. Hospitals overflowed, and private homes and buildings were transformed into makeshift hospitals, staffed by medical students. Undertakers couldn't keep up with the demand for coffins and burials, and grave diggers dared not get near the dead. In some places, families had to bury their own loved ones in mass graves. Three to six percent of the entire global population died. The Spanish flu killed around 25 million people in its first 25 weeks, a million a week. 
It killed more people in one year than the bubonic plague did in four. It killed more people in 24 weeks than AIDS did in 24 years. It killed more people than all the wars of the 20th century combined. When it was over, current estimates put the death toll at around 100 million people. And then, just like that, it was over. By the summer of 1919, the flu pandemic had come to an end. Those who were infected either died or developed immunity. Researchers think the world dodged a bullet and the virus mutated into a less lethal strain, a fact which is thankfully common with influenza. So why don't we talk about the Spanish flu more? I mean, with numbers this devastating, you'd think this would be in every school textbook, screaming off the page in 100 font, but it isn't. Historians blame a perfect storm of parallel events, but mostly just World War I. Most of the flu's U.S. victims died within a nine-month period, and it was not as if Americans were not used to deadly outbreaks. Diseases we now look upon as things from our ancient past, things like typhoid, yellow fever, diphtheria, and cholera, were all occurring at roughly the same time. Flu deaths may have been overlooked, not only because there was a terrible war on, but also because the disease killed those in the same age bracket as those in the trenches. After a while, one young man cut down in his prime looks just like another. It's almost as if the woes of the Spanish flu were merely added to the already incalculable agonies of the First World War. Today, nearly all cases of influenza A worldwide are direct descendants of this 1918 strain. We know it today as H1N1. But it also mutated into two other strains, which, since the original outbreak, have killed more than 3 million people. Severe influenza epidemics tend to occur every few decades. Experts believe that the next one is not a question of if, but rather a question of when. And this is where I chose to end my surf today, Kyle. I started with the Japanese occupation of Alaska's Aleutian Islands in World War II. From there, I profiled one of the soldiers who was present for that conflict, the author Dashiell Hammett. And finally, I looked into one of the maladies that left a tremendous scar on Hammett, and indeed, the entire planet, the Spanish flu. A hundred million people dead? Insane. It's like the worst disaster movie ever made with the Empire State Building falling and being blasted by aliens and like every single Michael Bay movie ever made, except that it's with the disease and we don't talk about it. What did people think was happening at the time? You, you, uh, you mentioned that there are other diseases floating around and people managed to get sick all the time anyway, but did they understand the global scale of this pandemic as it was happening? I think they, they understood what was what was happening, I don't think they necessarily understood the extent of it. I mean, things weren't communicated as quickly as they were today. You know, today I can send a text to someone in, you know, Mogadishu and we can communicate back and forth instantly. Back then, that wasn't happening. Not quite yet. We we're, you know, close, but not quite yet. So uh, I still think that we weren't able to get ahead of it in the way that we would have today. And like I said, it wasn't until the 40s that we created the vaccines and the sorts of things that would inoculate us against 
these, you know, these very sorts of diseases. So um, there were no flu shots back then. There was no way to stop this. You just had to survive it. And you said that the strain of flu, H1N1, is still with us today, or a modern descendant of it anyway? Right. So H1N1 is something all of our listeners should be familiar with. It's something that you hear about at your doctor's office. It's something you hear about on the news. And I had no idea until I researched this that H1N1 is a direct descendant straight back to the Spanish flu. And thankfully, and this is not unique, flus tend to, the, the truly deadly ones, tend to mutate into less deadly strains rather than into more deadly strains as they go forward, thankfully. Because if they if it didn't, we would have killed so many more people. That reminds me. I need a flu shot. Yeah, me too. Nice story. A lot of people died in your story, but it was nice. So uh, where are we at with the Amazon? All right. We are done with the deep time in the Amazon River. Well, at least the deep time part. We are actually still on the Amazon River with my surfing. I'm river surfing, in fact. <clears throat> I want to go back to a particular moment, back to the year 1542 of the Common Era. Home sweet Amazon. Deep in the western Amazon rainforest, right near the eastern slopes of the Andes Mountains, among the great big trees and the howler monkeys, the poison dart frogs and the screaming kihas, there were a bunch of humans. Now, I know humans all kind of look the same from the air, but these humans were a little different. You see, these guys are Spanish, and they are exploring the region just east of the Andes Mountains for the first time. I mean, there are lots of people already living here in the Amazon rainforest in 1542, uh, but no Spaniard, or as they might have called themselves, no Castilian, had ever been this deep into the interior of South America before. This expedition that we're spying on, made up of about 200 men and 4,000 native helpers, is searching for something called País de la Canela. País de la Canela. The country of cinnamon, a kind of El Dorado, a mythical land of riches. And the leader of this expedition? Gonzalo Pizarro. Gonzalo Pizarro. Half-brother of the infamous Francisco Pizarro, the guy who led the conquest of the Incas. <laughs> Gonzalo is just about to send his second-in-command on a quick scout down a side river to look for food. As we will see in a moment, it probably wasn't originally Gonzalo's idea. You see, the expedition has been rough so far. Like, really rough. Already the group has lost 140 Spanish and 3,000 native helpers. They had either died or just deserted, vanishing into the forest. It was hot, beyond humid, and the Spanish were increasingly demoralized by what seemed to be an utterly unforgiving landscape of death. Dios, ayúdanos. Sálvanos de esta tierra de muerte. The Amazon will not suffer a fool, and these Spaniards had no idea where they were. Plus, there was starvation to consider. They had eaten through their supply of pigs, of which they had originally brought 2,000. They had also eaten some dogs and horses for good measure. And they beat up a lot of people they came across, people that lived in the Amazon. Pizarro's men were looking for gold and information on nearby cities that happened to be fantastically wealthy, if there were any. And thus, they created a lot of enemies and consequently, the perfect conditions for retaliation from the locals. 
they were in hell. Quizás no debiéramos haber invadido los países de otras personas. So this second-in-command person, a man named Francisco de Orellana, Francisco de Orellana, took a subset of about 50 or so men and set off down this side river to look for food and supplies and to scout the area. Necesitamos comida o moriremos. Voy a llevar unos hombres y vamos a buscar comida. They found a friendly village willing to give them food about nine days downriver. But Oriana's men, still so fearful of being hungry all the time, did not want to return to the main expedition and share that food with the rest of Pizarro's men. So they threatened to mutiny against Oriana. Oriana was forced to stay put. But being the good Spaniard that he was, he made those mutinous men sign some paperwork first explaining that Oriana was forced not to return to Pizarro and the main group. You see, that was the key to being a good conquistador, raping, pillaging, and articulate studious paperwork. In fact, it all seems a bit fishy now, almost as if Oriana and his compatriots concocted a reason together in order to escape the death trap that Gonzalo was leading them to. But it turns out that Pizarro had gotten desperate. Por Dios, vámonos, dejemos este infierno verde. Pizarro took what was left of the main expedition and returned over the Andes Mountains to Quito, limping into Quito with only 80 men remaining alive, starving, skeletal almost. This effectively stranded Oriana and his 50 men in the wilderness of the Amazon rainforest. So, what is one to do when left alone in a deadly, impenetrable, unknown landscape? Easy. Hit the river and get the hell out of there. Síganme. Juntos vamos a sobrevivir esta magnífica tierra de muerte. That's what Oriana did. They set out to follow the river system all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, which they guessed must have been very close by. Uh, spoiler alert, it was very far away, about five months away. It wasn't easy. In fact, one might argue that it was the least easiest thing that Europeans had done that century in the New World, second to the conquest of the Mexica and the Inca. By all reasoning, they should have died, and died horrifically. They were starving, eating their own shoes, some became seriously ill, they got into accidents and injured themselves, and importantly, they got into serious battles with several, several nations of people. The Machiparo, for one, and also the Piratapuya, whose front line of defense against Oriana's group, including men and women. This led the Spanish to nickname the ladies they saw Amazons, after a myth of warrior women described by the ancient Greek historian Herodotus. After five months of violence and hanging on by their fingernails and prolonged starvation, Oriana and his men reached the Atlantic Ocean. Some of the men were, in fact, alive, if only barely. What they found on their voyage down the Amazon River filled in a lot of blank spaces on the map for the Spanish. But Oriana was initially considered a traitor for abandoning Pizarro's main expedition. And either because of that black mark or because people assumed that no one would ever live in such a deadly part of the world, Europeans didn't really believe Oriana. And his chronicler, a priest named Gaspar de Carvajal, Gaspar de Carvajal, who traveled with Oriana, when they claimed that they saw a lot of people in the Amazon. And I mean a lot. 
They described cities, towns, villages, large crowds of people all the way down the river. There was the province of the gibbets, or racks, so named because the great settlement they saw displayed racks of human skulls, warriors previously conquered. Another territory, that of Aparia, had a 180-mile stretch of settlements that were positioned so close together that they were separated by less than a crossbow shot. They saw villages crowded against the shoreline, passing by dozens daily as they progressed down the river. One town was so large that they sent 4,000 warriors out to attack Oriana's group. Oriana's men landed in the town of the burned, so named because Oriana raided it for food and then burned the houses down. They passed by a town where all the buildings were painted white, another town they called Pueblo de la Calle. Pueblo de la Calle. The town of the street, named that way because the town was centralized around a main street. Every time they landed on shore to gather food and supplies, they encountered roads, pathways, some of them quite old. As Oriana's group traveled through the region, word of the expedition's location traveled like lightning down the river ahead of them. It got so bad for Oriana's men that they found they had to stay in their boats in the middle of the river and not attempt landings anywhere. Everywhere they saw a chance to land and collect food, the shoreline was thick with warriors, armed with weapons and poison, and ready to defend their territory. By the end of the journey, their boat was so riddled with arrows that it supposedly looked like a porcupine. Carvajal himself took an arrow to the eye. According to Carvajal, there was monumental building, fortified towns, well-developed roads, all the hallmarks that other regions of the Americas had, all the hallmarks of civilization. But again, Oriana and Carvajal's reports on the Amazon weren't believed for a long time. Even today, we think of the Amazon as a sparsely populated area. Some believed that the jungle was just too deadly, that the soil was too poor to support agriculture. One modern archaeologist, Betty Meggers, was adamant that no large civilization could be sustained in the Amazon with such poor soil. And indeed, poor soil is a hallmark of tropical rainforests everywhere. But what if that wasn't the case? Or rather, what if that wasn't always the case? What if Oriana's men really saw these things? Archaeologists and scientists and those currently stripping the Amazon of its trees are discovering that Oriana and Carvajal might not have been exaggerating in terms of how populated the Amazon region was. It turns out that the human history of the Amazon is old, very old, and very peopled. Some of the things being revealed now are pretty incredible. For one, there are these great big geoglyphs being discovered in certain regions, like the states of Acre and Mato Grosso in Brazil, Great big shapes carved into the forest floor that date back to the year 1250 or 1000. Shapes like squares and circles and other geometric forms. Think of something like the Nazca lines for comparison, of things that only make sense from the air. Probably these were used in villages or towns as the base of a fortification. But researchers are still trying to figure that out. Human occupancy goes back further than that. For example, the earliest indications of human activity can be seen in Caverna de Pedra Pintada. Caverna de Pedra Pintada. The Cave of the Painted Rock in the Brazilian state of Pará. Researched thoroughly by archaeologist Anna C. Roosevelt, the Cave of the Painted Rock has stone tools and refuse that date back to about 13,000 years ago. And there is a swell collection of cave art in that cave, too, that is also thousands of years old. 
Elsewhere, there are lines of evidence that illustrate a deep occupancy in the Amazon. Pottery and burial mounds dating back thousands of years can be found in various locations, for example. There is also something called Terra Preta do Indio, Terra Preta do Indio, or Black Soil of the Indian, a clever technique of mixing a variety of charcoal, broken pottery, and animal remains to create a highly fertile patch of soil. Some areas of human occupancy in the Amazon still have this black soil innovation underfoot, left over from centuries of cultivation. There are groups living in the Amazon today that still do this, in fact. One spot near the city of Santarém has a three-mile stretch of this artificial black soil, part of a complex of black soil patches in this area. According to experts, this level of agriculture could support thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people in this one place alone. In research published earlier this year in the journal Nature Communications, a team of scientists used satellite imagery to search unexplored portions of the forest, looking for geoglyphs on the forest floor. Every spot they likely thought the imagery pointed to a geoglyph turned out to be one when they went out to the forest to check. They found 24 sites this way, with some sites sporting the black Indian soil. Extrapolating from this data, they estimate that there are more than a thousand geoglyphs remaining to be found in the area of their search in the state of Mato Grosso. This research and the research of others suggest that millions of people potentially lived in the Amazon basin. In a long series of interconnected villages, cities, and towns with roads connecting much of it all together. And perhaps most telling are the leftover effects of agroforestry. Instead of growing crops like the Mexica or the Inca did, the people of the Amazon cultivated trees. People remark that in the Amazon today, there is a great deal of edible fruits growing on trees. Turns out, this might not have been a fluke of nature. All those villages and towns were cultivating the forest around them, creating great orchards of edible fruits. And much of that is still reflected today in what species of trees are growing in the Amazon. It's like an afterimage of a village or a town, the remnants of a once populated place. One researcher suggests that perhaps 11% of the area of the Amazon basin that doesn't flood may have been shaped and cultivated by human hands. Extrapolating further out, if this is true, then the Amazon rainforest is less a primeval, untouched swath of nature than a human-created and human-managed landscape, still bristling with the innovations of humans who figured out how to live in a really tough place. So what happened? Where did all these people go? Why do we only hear of, quote, uncontacted tribes deep in the Amazon? Well, disease is the most likely culprit. Disease is the biggest player in the story of the Americas, wiping out perhaps up to 90% of the people in some areas. One of the greatest human catastrophes in history. Without the impact of disease, there would likely be no European presence in the Western Hemisphere today. Smallpox, malaria, yellow fever, and others, introduced by Europeans during the contact period, probably raced ahead of explorers and decimated the whole region. This was probably an exceptionally quick event, too, given how well things like diseases flourish in wet, tropical environments. What happened to the Amazon during this time frame was basically the apocalypse. Oriana saw a whole world with a very populated, civilized rainforest. And the next few Europeans that came into the area saw no one. 
just a massive forest going feral for maybe the first time in thousands of years. It's like as if I took a great big beautiful clay pot and smashed it onto the floor into a thousand pieces. All those uncontacted people in the Amazon rainforest today, those people that we assume have been living in static isolation for thousands of years, those people aren't living in stasis in some primordial hunter-gatherer way of life. Those people are survivors of a great nightmarish ordeal, a time when entire human societies vanished like wisps of smoke. They are but pieces of the clay pot smashed on the floor. So that's me. I've reached the end of my surfing, piecing together as many as 10 Wikipedia pages and several outside sources for verification. I managed to staple together a kind of life history of the Amazon River over the last 55 million years. And the truth of that life history is simultaneously very detailed and filled with big questions. I skipped a lot and summarized where it was convenient. My history isn't complete as a result. But it is a very interesting topic. You should uh, check it out on your own. Several pages I interacted with talked variously about the human history of the Amazon, tantalizing clues about what the pre-Columbian Amazon might have been like. I bounced around a bunch of Wikipedia pages for this topic and routinely left the wiki ecosystem to verify and pull information from outside sources, including a book by Charles C. Mann called 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus. It is a popular, well-written book, and it is likely no surprise that many of the Wikipedia articles I used pulled topics from this book. So that's me. I'm done. I've surfed the Amazon and lived, which is more than I can say for the Titanoboa, or some of Oriana's men. I, uh, this reminds me, and I, I think I've brought this book up on one of our past podcasts, but have you ever read The Lost City of Z by David Gran? No, I haven't. Uh, but coincidentally, it is near the top of my list right now of uh, books I intend to read. Yeah, it's a great book. And it's all about, so, you know, there are multiple stories going on. There's the story of, of Percy Fawcett, the British explorer, going in in the early 1900s to try to find the lost city of Z. There's the, the other story of people who've gone in to try to find him who've disappeared as well as him. It, it, there's all kinds of level, levels of just the Amazon swallowing people up. Um, but it's amazing because it discusses something that most historians up until just recently have discounted. And that is that the Amazon used to boast massive cities. And most historians have said that's impossible. It's too dense. It's too dangerous. It, there's you can't support agriculture. There's just no way that civilizations could have survived in there at those levels at that technology. And the whole story of the lost city of Z is like a pyramided city in the middle of the jungle. And they may have found it before disappearing. And it's one of those things that I, I hesitate to kind of jump on board because it's the kind of thing that you find in all kinds of pseudoscience websites and, and conspiracy theory websites and stuff like that. You know, they love these sorts of ideas. But 
as we go into the into the future, like you're talking about satellite imagery and stuff like that, we're finally starting to discover, oh, wait a second, there might be something to this. There might have been entire cultures, cities of tens or hundreds of thousands of people living in the jungle, and we've never found evidence of them. And yet, we might just be on the cusp of it. And if that happens, it will rewrite everything about the Amazon. You know, my feeling is that no place on Earth is so deadly that humans won't try to live in it. I mean, people have been living in Antarctica for decades and decades now. They they need outside support, sure, but the Amazon has been variously peopled in one form or another for thousands of years. But the thing that surprises me the most is the agroforestry end of it, like changing the landscape to suit your needs without breaking the ecosystems there. It makes sense that you'd be cultivating and domesticating trees to serve the same functions as wheat or maize in a place like this. But when you take that kind of activity and look for the after image, the vegetable matter after image that is left behind from the activities of long ago cities, the plants that are still hanging around, it's just plain mind boggling. I am really excited about the things that archeologists are now doing in terms of the Amazon with satellite imagery and the LIDAR. And I just think we haven't heard the most surprising things yet about the human story of the Amazon rainforest. I think really surprising discoveries are just on the horizon. I agree. I think that there's, I think likely within our lifetimes, as we continue to perfect satellite imagery and LIDAR and everything else, we're, we're going to discover that there were people where we never thought they would be. And then the question is, can we even get in there and find it? Because as we were discussing earlier, whether it's 14, whatever, whether it's 1925, whether it's 2018, the Amazon, I think you even said it, does not suffer fools. And it does not, it is a profoundly difficult place to live. Welcome to the credits. Special thank yous go out to our various voice volunteers. Michelle Robertson, Alan McCormick, Matt Essery, Amanda Smith, hey, that's me, Philip Cushing, Priscilla Blossom, Eddie Fernandez Jr., Arturo G. Codina, Chiago Fragoso, Nathaniel Delk, Kai Nohara, and TKC. Bird calls via Gabriel Lacey, Jeremy Menz, Felipe Arantes, Christopher Zelay, and Doug Goshfield via Xenocanto.org. Additional thanks to Patrick Sullivan and David Zagardo for their input and work. That's it. Thanks for listening. And remember, the Amazon does not suffer a fool. <laughs> <laughs>